Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Father, it is by your grace that we are able to come here today and worship in your name. And it is by your grace that we can be a part of a congregation that has faithfully shared the gospel for nearly 80 years. And it's by your grace that uh, we have so many people in our lives that, that love you and serve you. And Father, we pray that this morning, by your grace, that you would use your word and the guiding of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to your truth. And uh, we pray that you would help us to set aside our traditions and our preconceived notions and our influences of the culture as we submit our hearts and our minds to the truth and the authority of your holy word. And we ask this morning that you would continue to work in us and you would change us evermore into the image of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. If you have a, if you brought a Bible with you um, or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, uh, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter number two, Ephesians chapter two. Um, if you're not familiar where Ephesians is, um, it's nearly the middle of the New Testament. It's after the uh, book of Galatians, um, Ephesians chapter two. We're going to begin in ch- uh, verse one and it reads, and you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, lest the rest, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age, ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This right here is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John Piper once wrote that grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and the power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. And uh, this morning we're kicking off a brand new series um, titled Grace, More Than We Can Imagine. And... uh, And this series is actually a continuing conversation that we started um, at the beginning of the year Um, This with with our series titled The The Lies That We Believe. In fact, if you remember, we began that series with the understanding that our culture and uh, even the church at large is at a point of crisis in in history. uh, Because our culture and the church at large have both adopted much of the world's postmodern philosophy. Postmodernism or the postmodern view that we talked about is this perspective that says that there's really no objective standard for truth, that there's no absolute truths, right? That, the, that all truth is relative. We've come to the understanding, and many people have, that what is true for you might not be actually true for me. And really that the truth is relative to a person's life and a person's own experiences and even their preferences, and, and this has led to a cultural crisis that we see in the Western world. We see right now what we're seeing today in the way that people behave, in the way that they're treating each other, and in and, 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 and the way that they act with these self-absorbed ways. What you're seeing is the result of postmodern thought. And, and, and this has had a huge influence on our culture, but it's also had a huge influence on the church. It's contributed to the decline of the Christian faith in America and the Western world. And as we talked about, the reason for this decline in the church is somewhere in recent history, the church unwittingly 
began to shift his focus. You see, the the church became about being liked and accepted by the world instead of actually doing what God calls us to do, which is to declare the truth. You see, Jesus came into the world, as the Apostle John reminds us, full of grace and truth. Which means that Jesus was the embodiment of not just one, but both of these things. Both grace and truth. And everywhere Jesus went, he brought both of these things to bear. He drew people to himself with his grace. He loved people. He had compassion on them. Right? But then when they were near him, he told them the truth. The truth that's found in the gospel. The truth of God's word. And he told them the truth even when it was hard for them to hear the truth. But somewhere in our history, the church at large has become focused on on just the grace side. And it has become obsessed with making people feel good. The church is obsessed about making people feel better about themselves. The church is obsessed about not offending anybody and telling people what they want to hear rather than telling people what they need to hear, which is the truth. Real, objective truth from God himself. And the result has been a systematic failure by the church to teach and reteach and reinforce the foundational truths of the Christian faith. And the result has been, as we have seen, has been catastrophic. And what we have today, as a result of this, is a culture, is a biblically illiterate, spiritually immature Christian population that's attending a theologically weak church. That is what... What we have. And, and, and what's worse is that church then unleashes these well-intentioned people who have good intentions. But, he, but it releases those well-intentioned but spiritually incapable believers out into the world. Where they become bounced around by every wind of doctrine. And become prey to every false teaching. And suddenly there's no difference between the world and all those who are supposed to be not of this world. And suddenly the gospel doesn't have any relevance anymore. Because nobody cares about what happens You know, in the afterlife, right? The church then has to resort to entertainment and the church has to resort to false teachings of the prosperity gospel to fill seats in the congregation, right? And through it all, the message of hope that is found in Christ Jesus becomes diluted and it becomes even lost. And that's the crisis. The church at large is failing to teach the essential foundational truth of the gospel. And so because of that, We as a local church have committed ourselves to teaching and learning the orthodox, robust, foundational teachings of the Christian faith. And we've committed ourselves to be a people who know what we believe and why we believe what we believe. We've committed ourselves to learn the truth found in the word of God and to follow the truth wherever it leads us. Even when it's inconvenient, even when it's hard, even when we don't like it. And so... In our series before, we talked about the inerrancy of of, of Scripture and the authority of Scripture, that the the Bible is actually the Word of God. And we talked about the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the fact that He is all-powerful and in control. And we talked about the doctrine of total depravity, which means we're born sinners. We're not good people who occasionally do bad things, right? We are broken people who work and have to struggle to do good things because we're born children of wrath. By our very nature, we are sinners. And then finally, we talked about the doctrine of the church. The fact is, the truth is, you don't need the church to be saved. But you do need the church to help you to grow in the knowledge of Christ and become spiritually mature. Because the church is the pillar of truth. The church is the instrument that God uses to preserve and convey um, the truth of his word for the world around us. And it is the church that God uses to train and to disciple his followers for the work of the ministry that he calls us all to. Well, this week, as we kick off this new series, um, we're going to actually begin with an in-depth look at one of the most important foundational doctrines in the, in the Christian faith, the doctrine of grace. And this particular doctrine is actually so big, okay? And it is, it is so, um, such an all-encompassing subject that we're not going to talk about it all. Okay, I mean, we could talk about this for the next, we're going to talk about it for the next several weeks, but we could talk about this for an entire year. We could talk about it in, in theological and academic and practical terms and still never cover it. Okay, it's just that big. But So the goal of this series is not for you to understand all the layers and the little nuances of the doctrine of grace, but instead 
Our goal is twofold. Number one, in this series, we want to establish for you a foundational understanding of what grace is, what it means for you as a believer, and what you're supposed to do in your life in light of that grace. The second goal is in this series that we want to explore this subject in such a way that, that, it, that it builds into you a desire to learn more about it and about your relationship with God that you, by grace, that you will go out and begin to study this on your own. And so that's the two goals. Okay. Number one, we want to help you have a foundational understanding of what grace is. And then number two, we want to help you to have a desire to know more about it so you study it on your own. Now, with that, the very best place to start on a subject like this is, is with a question. And the question that we need to ask is, what is grace? I mean, what is this grace that Christians keep talking about? What is, what is grace that, that, that preachers continue to, to exposit about? What, what is this grace that, you know, this amazing grace that, that singers and congregations sing about? I mean, we all kind of have an experience with the word grace. We kind of, when we hear it, we kind of instinctively have a sense of what it means. Right? We all kind of know what the word grace is. I mean, grace can be the name of a child. I think we all know somebody named Grace. Right, and, and grace can also be that prayer before you say before a meal. I mean, many of us, when we're kids, we said grace. And grace can be a personal, physical quality. We've all said, you know, she moves with such grace or he sings with incredible grace. Grace can also be that flexibility that we need when, when times are difficult, like, like the grace period when you have to pay your bills. Right? Grace can also be about being nice to someone, you know, he was so gracious. She was so gracious. Grace is this little simple word, but it houses a world full of meaning. But what does grace mean to the Christian? What does it mean in the biblical sense of the word? Well, the simplest definition of grace is simply an undeserved gift. Okay. That's essentially what grace means in the Bible. It's an undeserved gift. Okay? It's a gift that you give that you don't deserve. Like if you wrong me or you do something to hurt me and I turn and forgive you, that is grace. Okay? You don't deserve my forgiveness, but I give it to you anyway. That's grace. Okay? And his counterpart is mercy. We hear them all the time, grace and mercy. Well, because they're, they're counterparts. You see, mercy is where you don't get what you deserve. Right? You do something wrong, but then you don't get punished for it. That's mercy. So if you wrong me or you hurt me and I don't take you to court, then that's mercy. Right? Me, but then me forgiving you, that's grace. On the one hand, you don't get what you deserve. And on the other hand, you do get what you don't deserve. That's the difference. So biblical grace is as generic as we possibly can make it. Is this idea of an undeserved gift. I've been given a gift that I don't deserve. Now, this is a really important uh, concept because the grace that we're all concerned with is God's grace. Right? Is the grace that God gives us. This is the grace that preachers preach about. This is the grace that we sing about. This is the grace that we long for. And it certainly is the grace that we need. Because we all need God's grace. But what is it? What is God's grace? Well, one of the most important things that we have to come to terms with is the fact that our theological and functional understanding of grace is going to be directly tied to our understanding of who God is and our relationship to God. Let me say that again. Okay, our theological and our functional understanding of grace, what grace is actually going to mean to us in our lives is directly connected to, tied to who God actually is and who we are in that relationship. If you're going to understand grace, you need to understand God and you need to understand us. And what I mean by this is you're not going to understand grace unless you understand your understanding of grace is tied to him and who you are in light of him. And what this means is if you have a small view of God, then you're going to have a very small view of grace. If you have a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic view of, of, of God, then you're going to have a view of grace. That's the equivalent of a cosmic ATM machine, right? That grace is, is only there when you need it or when you want something. But by the same token, if you have a view of humanity that says that we were born good, that we by nature are good, then God's grace isn't going to be a gift to you. It's going to be something you believe that you deserve. You see, if you have a false view of God, you're going to have a false view of grace. 
If you have a false view of humanity, then you by, by default will have a false view of God's grace. But on the other hand, if you have a, a robust understanding of who God is and you understand who you are in, in light of that truth, then you will be able to have a true, robust, foundational understanding of the grace that God actually gives to us. Your view of grace is tied inexplicably to your view of God. If, that, if there's anything that you remember from what I say today, your view of grace is tied to your view of God. And there's no way around that. So in order to understand grace, we must start with God in our understanding of who he is. And so what do we know about God? Well, what we know from previous conversations is that God is absolutely sovereign. God is fully and completely and totally 100% in control. The prophet Isaiah tells us, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there was none like me declaring the end from the beginning. In the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is 100% completely sovereign. God created all things. He is above all things. He is firmly in control of, of all of creation. He is the sovereign reigning Lord. But not only is he sovereign, he is also good. The psalmist declares, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. God is good. He is the epitome and the definition of all that is good. And because he is good, he is also holy. Leviticus 19.12, God tells Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, am holy. In Samuel, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, we're told that there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. The psalmist urges us to worship the Lord with splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. God is holy. He is completely set apart. In him there is no evil. There is no iniquity. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. As we continue to declare along with the angels of creation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and is and is to come. And because God is holy, he is also just. He is a God of justice. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him, says Isaiah. In Deuteronomy, it says the rock with his, the rock with the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is just in all his ways, and as such, he is a righteous judge. So what do we know about God? We know that he's sovereign. We know that he's good. We know that he's holy. We know that he is also just. Okay? And our understanding of grace must take this in consideration. It must be rooted in who God is. But also, since we are the recipients of God's grace, we need to understand and come to terms with what we know about who we are. And what we do know for a fact is we are not sovereign. Okay, God is, we're not because we are God's creation. He created us, which means we are finite and ultimately we are not in control. One of the hardest things for, I think, us as human beings to come in terms with is the fact that we're not in control. We're not in control of the weather. We're not in control of the economy. We're not in control even of our own bodies. We're not in control of whether or not we wake up this morning. Okay. We are not in control. God is. We are not sovereign in any sense of the word. And because we are, because of that, we are God's creation. Okay? We belong to God. We are his, which means we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord, which means we don't have the right to live however we want to live. I mean, we certainly choose to do that, but we don't have the right to choose that because we belong to God and he has the right to determine for us what his purposes are for us and how we are to live. And not only that, okay, not only do we belong to God and not only are we not sovereign or in control, we are not even good. 
This is a truth that we have to come to terms with as we talked about a few weeks ago. We are not born good. Hear me. You're not born good and then somehow the world turns you bad. We're all born broken. Every single one of us. In fact, David, he tells it to us as plain as can be. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Literally translated means I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. The Bible makes it very clear we are born sinners. We don't end up that way. We start that way. What's worse though is we're incapable to get better on our own. The Apostle Paul tells us, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. And hear this, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For, they, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Isaiah himself, the prophet, bears witness and he says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We are born sinners and we're covered up in our sin. That's who we are. Now let's take a closer look at this. On the one hand, you have sovereign God. He is good. He is holy. He is just. Right? But on the other hand, we are not sovereign. We belong to God and we were born sinners in rebellion to God and we we're incapable of changing ourselves. So on the one hand, you have the holy, righteous God who is all powerful, who is the embodiment of good. And on the other hand, you have us, unholy, unrighteous, weak, totally depraved, morally bankrupt. In fact, we rightly deserve death. The Apostle Paul reminds us the wages of sin is death. Right? And that we, he also reminds us that by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We don't deserve God's goodness. We deserve his wrath. And that is the starting point that we have to to actually come to to understand the grace of God. What you and I have to understand about grace is this. We deserve nothing from God but his immediate judgment and wrath. That's what we deserve. We deserve nothing from God but his immediate judgment and wrath. God owes us nothing. He doesn't owe you a car. He doesn't owe you any food. He doesn't owe you a family. He doesn't owe you a place to live. He doesn't owe you joy. He doesn't owe you even the next breath that you're going to take. He owes you nothing but the immediate judgment and wrath. You need to let that sink in for a minute. God owes you and I absolutely nothing. But on the other hand, we owe God everything. We belong to him. We are his creation. He gave us life. He provides for us. We owe God everything. We owe him our obedience. We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our awe, our admiration and respect. We owe him all the efforts that we have to give. We owe him our full undivided attention. We owe him everything. Now, can you see the disparity in the relationship here? This is the important part. There's this gigantic disparity in the relationship between us and God. This is one-sided. This is how we have to approach the the subject of grace. Our foundational understanding of God's grace begins with the understanding that God owes us nothing but his wrath and judgment. And we owe him everything. If there was any way we could even give it to him. That's where we have to start. And anything short of that understanding is a faulty understanding of grace. Now, since we can see this in these terms. And since we understand this, only now can we begin to talk about God's grace in a way that corresponds to any form of reality, which leads to our first understanding of grace, which is called common grace. Common grace is a theological term applied to the grace that God gives to everyone because God gives grace to everyone. God gives undeserved gifts to everyone. You see, the fact that uh, 
that, that he's not giving us what, what he owes us, which is nothing but short of his judgment and wrath, is his mercy, right? God in his mercy has chosen not to immediately deal out his justice and give us what we deserve, but instead he has given us many, many good things that we don't deserve. For instance, life. God has chosen to give you the gift of life. You are alive today by the grace and mercy of God himself. Do you understand that? You are alive today in this moment because God has decided for you to be alive. You don't have that choice. It's not your doing. You are alive because God said that you will be alive by his grace. It's the same with your family. That's the same with your friends The fact that they are alive today in this moment is because of God's grace. Take a deep breath with me. Just that right there was a gift from God. That was by the the grace of God that you could actually breathe. You don't deserve that breath. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to warrant it. It was something that God said that you could have by his decree. It is a gracious gift from him, your heavenly father, your eyesight, your hearing, your ability to taste, smell, and touch, all gifts from God. Your friendship, your love, laughter, hugs, comfort, all gifts from God. The food that we eat, the water that we drink, the bed that you slept in last night, the car that you drove in coming over here this morning, all gifts from God. Your job, your bank account, your food in your refrigerator, your mom, your dad, your children, your grandchildren. All of these are gracious gifts from the hand of God. And God gives these gifts to everyone. In fact, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 5 verse 45. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He lavishes his gifts on everyone, all of us. God's common grace is generously, generously bestowed upon all of us. The joy we feel, the momentary happiness that we experience, the beauty of the world around us, the comfort of simply just being in the same room with someone you love. That thrill of competitive sports, Lord, must be a Patriots fan, and I'm still not. All right? But that moment in life that takes your breath away, all of these things are the undeserved gifts from God. All of it is by God's unfathomable, unsearchable grace. And he owes owes you nothing. He continues to pour into your life day by day, moment by moment, gift upon gift. Think about that. We who rebels against God, we rebel against him. We who have sinned against God, we who have this debt that we can't possibly pay in a million lifetimes. God gives us those gifts. And if God were to snap his fingers and, 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 and all of the universe were, was to disappear into the nothingness from which it came, that would be justice. But instead, God continues to graciously give us one gift after the next. One breath after the next, one meal after the next, one kiss of a loved one after the next, one sunset after the next. God's common grace is so unbelievable. And let me just be very blunt with you. If that was all there was, if that's all there was to our existence, God would still be so unbelievably gracious to us. If that's all there was, there was this life and then you died and you vanished into nothingness, that would still be grace. Our lives would still be filled with God's unmerited and undeserved gifts. If that's all there was in this life and then death and you went to judgment and you got the righteous judgment that you deserved and you went to hell, that would still be grace. You have to understand that the fact that that God allowed you to live and to exist in the first place is overwhelming, undeserved grace. If that's all there ever was, that by itself would be enough. But that's not where our grace from God ends. Because somewhere, God in eternity past decided and decreed by his wisdom and his will that he would not only have common grace and give it to all... He decided and decreed by his will that he would give a special grace, a saving grace to those who would receive his son by faith. 
God offers us this special grace, his saving grace. That grace that he offers, you know, to us, not only he not only gives us the gift of life and, and all the wonderful things he does through this common grace, but he also gives us the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus by his special grace. Paul tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul makes it very clear by the language that we have earned. What we deserve is death. We deserve to be permanently separated from God. We deserve the wrath of God, but instead the free gift, gift of God, undeserved, is a special gift, special grace that he offers, eternal life. Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about this. Holy, righteous, sovereign God gives to all of his creation that rebels against him gift upon gift upon gift. And he continues to lavish these gifts even though we continue to rebel against him. And then God decides not only to give the gift of common grace, he offers us the gift of eternal life with him through his special grace. We who are in rebellion to him. And if that's not enough to blow your mind, if that's not enough to cause your head to swell under the pressure of that idea, think about this. God not only offers us his common grace, he makes his special grace available to us by, listen here, he makes his special grace available to us by paying for it himself. You have to understand this. Because God is a God of justice. He is just. Which means our sins must be dealt with. Our sins must be punished. It's not about God just simply saying you are forgiven and that's it. Our sins come with a cost. There's a hefty price that must be paid. And there's not a one of us in here. There's not a one of us in here would think that justice would be served. If a cold blooded murder was allowed to go unpunished. There's not anyone in this room who thinks that it would be okay for, ju- for a judge to let a rapist go just because the judge said, I forgive you. We instinctively understand that justice must be done. We understand in our hearts that justice must be done. And it must be done in the physical world and it must also be done in the spiritual world. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Your sin always has a cost. There are always consequences to our sin. Jesus says that sinners will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Ezekiel tells us the soul that who, who sins shall die. Paul says the wages of sin is death. God is a God of justice and sin must be dealt with. There is a cost that must be paid. No, make no mistake about that. But as we talked about, there's not anything we can do about it. There's not anything we can do to pay it. Please understand that. You can't live a good enough life. You can't feed enough homeless people. You can't rescue enough kittens. Right? You can't love enough. You can't give enough. You can't sacrifice enough to ever cover the cost of your sin. But the problem is our sin must be paid for. So God in eternity past decreed that through his special grace that he himself will go ahead and pay for it himself. Not only does he give us common grace, but he pays for our sin himself so that we, those who rebel against him, can have a relationship with him. God paid the price himself to give us a special grace. And understand, this was a horrific cost. Paul reminds us, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And uh, David Gunderson... um, In an article that he wrote titled, Bought with a Price, he writes this. It's quite a bit, so I'm just going to read through it. Most Christians are familiar with the powerful Pauline phrase, we are bought with a price. It renders a hammer blow to our constant notion of personal rights and privileges and reminds us quite forcefully that we belong to Christ and not ourselves. We were bought with a price, and this purchase has implications. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul makes 
this the capstone of his, of his exhortation to sexual purity. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And in the, his next paragraph, he again appeals to the redemptive reality as one basis for his ex- exhortation to be content with your earthly status and position. Paul writes, you were bought with a price. Do not become a slave of men. Brethren, each one of you is to remain with God in the condition that he, in, in which he has been called. Gunderson goes on and says, the fact that we have been bought has invasive implications. When God purchased you from the slave market of sin, his goal for you was not minor tweaking or slight service. He aims for and demands your absolute transformation and his absolute ownership. He bought you. He owns you. No conditions, no qualifications, no fine print. You are his. And this... This is staggering enough as it stands. The implication of my life being owned by another, that these implications are far-reaching and pervasive. Yet Paul is getting somewhere, something much deeper, much more intense, much more devastating. You were not just bought. You were bought with a price. He asked, why does Paul add this phrase? Why did he just say you were bought, therefore glorify God in your body? Doesn't the concept of purchase include the concept of price? Doesn't the idea of buying logically include a cost? Were the Corinthians so economically challenged that they needed to be reminded that the idea of a purchase and a price were logically linked? There seems to be some sufficient conceptual redundancy here. But the Corinthians were not so naive about the marketplace. And Paul was not being redundant. He is not simply saying you were bought and as, as with every purchase, there's a price. He is not reminding them of a general conceptual connection between purchase and price. He's talking about blood. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the son. You were bought. Look at what it costs. You were bought. Don't ever forget the price that was paid. Or from God's perspective, I bought you and I paid dearly. For you. And oh, he says, how he paid. See Christ on the cross, forsaken by the Father, so we might be forgiven. And not just forgiven, but reconciled. And not just reconciled, but sanctified. And not just sanctified, but glorified. And not just glorified, but adopted. See the father turning his back on his heaving, suffocating, agonized, mystified son. For the first and last time in history of time and eternity, hear the son cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hear the father say, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And hear the prophets say, The Lord was pleased to crush him. God's pleasure in his son and God's pleasure in crushing his son are incompatible and incomprehensible. Which is why Paul does not say you were bought. He says you were bought with a price. How many things have been bought and sold and bartered for in the history of the world? The number is probably infinite. But there has never been a purchase like this purchase. There has never been a price like this price. If you're looking for a motivating reason to devote yourself to God afresh today, this is it. If you're searching for a reason to get up in the morning and to fulfill your Christian responsibility, let this be your reason, he says. If you desperately need strength to love and serve and pray and fight and forgive and study and stand and preach and parent and witness and endure and rejoice, here is the gospel strength. Because perhaps the only redemptive reality more powerful than the fact that you were bought is the height of the price that was paid. Why today should you do what is right? Because you were bought with a price. And it's staggering and devastating as it is. This is the gift that God holds out freely right now. By his special grace. You who are a sinner. You cannot save yourself. You who have not yet chosen to follow Christ. God paid the price for you to receive his special grace. He calls you to it now. And says repent and believe. What more must he do? He gave you his life. He continues to lavish 
upon you the gifts of love and friendship and the food and a warm bed. He continues to provide for your every need. And if that weren't enough, he sent his son to suffer in a way that no one has ever suffered before, to die in a way that you can't possibly imagine to pay for the cost of your sins. And all you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe and receive the gracious gift, the special grace that God has given you. What more, more must God do? And I know that some of us resist this. We try to resist God's grace. I know I tried to. For so many years I ran from God and I resisted him. I stood against him. I cursed him. I heard messages about the gospel and I ran. I ran from God's grace. But one day in the darkest hour of my life, God came to me. And I didn't ask him to come. But he came nonetheless. And he rescued me by his special grace. And this week as I'm thinking about this message, because this is not, this is a big message. Right? This is an important message. I'm sitting in my office, I'm thinking about this, and I'm, and I'm, I'm asking myself, why? Why is it in us humans to... To resist, why do we resist God's grace? Why do we run from it? I mean, you know, we're not going to come to God on our own. In fact, Apostle Paul says that it doesn't happen. He says, we don't seek God. No one seeks for God. Because we naturally resist God. We don't want him. But God lavishes this gift upon us. So what do we resist? Right? And... And better yet, why does God continue to pursue us? I mean, I mean, think about this. I mean, if, if I were God, I'd be like, fine. <laughs> you don't want it, then you can't have it. You know? But that's not God. And as I thought about this, I just, you know, meditated on this. An image came to my mind about what this is like. And, and it's an image that I, that I have to thank Facebook for because whether you... Like it or not, better for worse, man. If you're plugged into social media, you're going to see things that maybe you didn't want to see. And this wasn't something I wanted to see, but it actually had an impact on me. And so the image that comes to my mind is a video that I saw on Facebook. And in this video was this, um, was this little dog. And uh, this little dog was, was found um, abandoned uh, and trapped in what appeared to be an old building. And he was just left there to die. And, and, and so... Um, what they found him is they found him in this confined space and there was just garbage and trash all around. And he was, you know, kind of stuck in that and in, in his own waste. And he was emaciated. You could see his, you know, his bones and he was dehydrated and he had sores all over him and he could barely move because his joints were all seized up and he just stood there trembling. Okay. And as his rescuers came close to him, this dog began to scream in terror. Yeah. I mean, this, this horrific sound coming from this, this little dog was just horrible because he didn't want anything to do with him. In his pain, in his horrible state, in his misery, he still had no interest in these people. He was terrified of letting them close to him. And as they began to, to, to give him little bits of food and give him some water, this pathetic little creature continues to, to try to scream while he's devouring the food and lapping up the water. And then as the rescuers drew closer to him, he was too weak to run or even to bite them. And as they began to lovingly stroke and comfort him, he still continues to resist and cry and struggle and scream. And then the rescuers soon wrapped him with the towel lovingly and gently picked him up. But he was still, with every bit of the strength that he had left, he continued to struggle and to cry. And the strength as it failed, when he couldn't scream anymore, he just continued to whimper and whine and resist. And then they finally brought him, brought him back to their facility and they went to work on him and they bathed him and they began to bind his wounds and medicate him. And he just stood there shivering, whining and whimpering in fear until finally... Until finally, exhausted, he surrendered. And that allowed the rescuers to have their way with him. And when that happened, something changed. Once he finally surrendered, he began to heal. And as he began to heal, he began to understand these people were loving him and caring for him. And as he began to grow and flourish, he fell in love with the people who saved him. 
And what you have to understand is the dog didn't save himself. Okay. The the dog resisted being saved, but his rescuers, because of their grace in their hearts, went after him and pursued him and cornered him and saved him. I think many of us oftentimes are like that little dog. We are broken and we are terrified, not knowing what is good for us as we attempt to resist God's grace, screaming and resisting and fighting back. But God continues to pursue us. It is God who rescues us. It's not something we do at all. It's all God all the time. That's why Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of work so that no one may boast. Paul's story was similar to the dog. Going somewhere and God in terror had to rescue him. Salvation is 100% the work of God. It is all God. We need to surrender to him. That's what we need to do is surrender to his sovereign hand. Now, the thing that you have to understand, the heartbreaking thing that you have to understand is not every dog gets rescued. And not every human being gets saved. That is the truth. People rescue the dogs that they are capable of rescuing. And God, by his special grace, he gives it to those who he wills by his eternal wisdom. And right now, God is standing here and he's calling you. He's calling you to surrender to his amazing grace. He's calling you to repent and believe the gospel and be saved. God is offering you today the gift of eternal life and fellowship with him. If you would but surrender into his loving hands, he would heal you and make you new. In fact, let's all bow our heads. And then while you're there, just if you don't mind, close your eyes. Because I want to appeal to you. Maybe you're someone like me who just resists. Right? Maybe even resisting God, you have pursuing your own agenda, but God is pursuing you. And for some reason, you just continue to just push him away. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know it. I don't want to come to terms with it. Maybe you're resisting God right now that you've been, you know, that he's calling you to put your trust in Jesus. And for some reason, you're just terrified to take that step to let that go. There's something in you that says, I want to hold on to my life. I want to hold on to that relationship I'm not supposed to be in. I want to hold on to my addiction. I want to hold on to the way I do things. For some reason, there's something you're holding on to instead of just allowing God to heal you. I want to appeal to you. Stop. Resisting. Stop resisting. Just stop. Just surrender to to God out of his sheer grace. Lavishing gifts upon you day after day after day. Surrender into his hand. The God who not only offers you the breath of life, but he offers you He offers you salvation and he paid for it through the blood of his own son. So with your heads bowed, if you're someone who finally is ready to surrender to God's saving grace, if you're ready to put your trust and your hope in Christ today, you're ready to receive that gift of eternal life, if you're ready to repent and believe the gospel, would you just raise your hand? If you're ready to trust in Jesus and just allow him to work in your life, I see you. Perhaps maybe you already know who God is. And you've trusted Christ, but for some reason you just have been doing your own thing. And you keep resisting to do your own thing. That you know that Jesus is your Savior, but you just struggle to obey. You struggle to be the person that God's calling you to be. You struggle to go and share the hope of Christ with other people. You struggle to live the life that you know that God's calling you to live. You know that that God's calling you to be more than you are right now. God has said for us to go and make disciples of the nations. Paul has said if someone won't work, they won't eat. There's some of us that just want to just sit back and just wait for the world to go around us instead of actually getting busy doing the work that God's calling us to do. If you are ready right now to recommit your heart to Christ, 
and surrender into his hand and let him be your God. Will you raise your hand? If you're willing to allow God to be your God and follow wherever he leads you, I see you. Let me pray for you. I see you. I want to pray for you and I want you to pray with me. And if these words resonate in your heart, then allow them to be the anthem of your hearts. Father, we love you so much. Why? Do you have so much grace on us? Why? Do you put up with us? Why do you continue to allow us to go on living, doing the things that we do, hurting the people the way we hurt people, living the lives that we live? Why do you continue to not just put up with us, but lavish these gifts upon us day after day after day? And more than that, why would you send your son to die for someone like me? That just doesn't make any sense to me. Father, of all the things, of all the mysteries of God that I can't wrap my head around, that's the one that that causes me to, to, to pause and stop in my tracks. Why? But Father, you reach out to us and you have done this for us, Father. And why then do we resist you? I pray, Father, those right now who need you, you would draw them close. And so, Father, hear our prayer. That, Lord, I'm a broken sinner and I cannot fix it on my own. I can't make myself right before you. That I am, I am confined to, the, to, to, to punishment and to hell because of my sin. But for some reason, you've decided to, to rescue me. And so, Lord, I declare right now that Jesus is the Lord of my life. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. And I have put my trust in him. I repent right now of my life and my sins. And I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, for those who need to be recommitted, Father, just help us to see you in a brand new way. And help us to not just be emotionally moved right now and then walk out of here and forget tomorrow. Let us be transformed today. Let us have a desire afresh for your word and your fellowship and for your goodness. And Father, I pray that you would raise up a people in this room who would go out and storm the gates of hell to save those who are lost. Father, we pray that and we declare that. It's in Christ my name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.